We're going to take a break, as I mentioned, from the book of Matthew this morning and talk about how Jesus is the light for the nations. The light for the nations. But before we do, let's pray together. Father, what a privilege to be here with these brothers and sisters in the Lord. And we look up to you this morning, Lord Jesus, to worship you. We ask for grace, Lord. Um, you wrote, the, through your Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago, you wrote to us saying um, that the night is far gone, the day is at hand. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord, redeem the time that you have given us, that we would fulfill the callings that you've placed upon our lives, that we would do our part, Lord, to participate in the worldwide work that you are doing to bring in your people from every nation, tribe, and tongue so that Jesus Christ will receive the glory that he is due. Help us to get a greater vision of who you are this morning, King Jesus. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah chapter 49, and uh, we're going to be talking about Jesus and uh, this, uh, this Old Testament prophecy concerning him this morning, and we know one of the great characteristics of Jesus' ministry that really carries throughout the entire Old Testament and the New Testament, and it's the call on the believers of Jesus Christ after Jesus, and that is that obedience to God for the glory of his name, virtually always entails suffering. It's true of Jesus, and it is true of those who go out in Jesus' name for the sake of his name. Um, Jesus said one time that no one who live, leaves lands or houses or families or brothers or sisters or mothers for the sake of my name and for the gospel who will not receive in this time houses and lands and brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers, and in the age to come, eternal life. And so there is a, there, to follow Christ in obedience for the sake of his name, there are things that must be given up. But no matter how much we give up for Christ, he always gives us way more in return. John Piper put it this way. He said, the Calvary road with Jesus is not a joyless road. It is a painful one, but it is a profoundly happy one. When we choose the fleeting pleasures of comfort and security over the sacrifices and sufferings of missions and evangelism and ministry and love, we choose against joy. We reject the spring whose waters never fail. The happiest people in the world are those who experience the mystery of Christ in them, the hope of glory, satisfying their deep longings and freeing them to extend the afflictions of Christ through their own sufferings to the world. That's the blessing of everyone who denies themselves for the sake of Christ. And we're going to see how Jesus did this for the glory of God from our text this morning in Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 through 7. And so if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. We're going to read from Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 through 7. This is the prophet Isaiah 
writing some 700 years before the birth of Christ, he says, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. He's talking to us. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. The Word of God. You may be seated. So I want to see three things concerning Christ this morning from this passage. Number one, I want to see Christ, God's chosen instrument. Christ, God's chosen instrument. Number two, Christ, God's suffering servant. Christ, God's suffering servant. Number three, Christ, God's light for the nations. Christ, God's light for the nations. But first we want to see Christ, God's chosen servant. God's chosen servant. I want to reflect... This morning on how Christ came to save the whole world. We, t- we take that for granted. But if you've ever read through the Bible carefully, you've probably noticed how basically how the entire Old Testament really just focuses on one nation. One people group, the Jews, the nation of Israel. Now God makes all kinds of amazing promises to this people. But if you know, if the if the Old Testament was all that we had and you were reading it, you, you would be left wondering, well, that's great for the Jews. But what about everybody else? And this fact confounded a lot of Jews. And that was probably that was the point of greatest controversy in the ministry of Jesus. Again, we take it for granted. But That was the great point of controversy. How is it that Gentiles, non-Jewish, pagan people, how is it that they too can enter into the congregation of God's chosen people and receive the promises of God? As someone once wisely said, the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. That is, it it was there. It was it was there all along, but it was mysterious and it was hidden. And this is true in one of the in the passage that we're looking at today. And so it's something. It was a mystery that Paul called it that had to be unveiled. And so again, we we take it for granted, but it was not it was not at all clear how we could be saved. Have you ever thought about that? Remember when Peter went to Cornelius's 
house, and he shared, the, and he wasn't even supposed to do that according to Jewish law, right? And he shared the gospel with them, and the Holy Spirit fell upon Cornelius, and he was the first Gentile to be saved. And 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 Paul and uh, Peter goes back to Jerusalem to tell them what happened, and the other Christian Jews are kind of arguing with him about it. And and and. And almost, not exactly, but almost reluctantly they say, well, I guess the, I guess the Holy Spirit has come to Gentiles too. <laughs> Surprise, guess so. All I can say is thank God that we can be saved. And Jesus had to explain that. He had to describe that. The road to Emmaus. These disciples were walking and they were disillusioned. They couldn't figure out how Jesus had died. And this stranger walks up beside them on the road to Emmaus. And they, and they said, he asked them what's going on. And, and they're like, you know, are you the only person, you know, have you had your ears shut? Do you not know what's happened in Jerusalem? And he's like, tell me about it. And this and, this and so Jesus came and he died. And, and, they did, and we thought he was the one to save Israel. And, and he just says, why are you, you know? Why are you so slow to understand, to get what's happening? But that's what happened. And in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is probably one, is, is, is one of the most quoted uh, Old Testament books in the New Testament, and for good reason. And Isaiah is basically broken up into two sections, uh, one, chapters 1 through 40 and then 40 and following. And it, uh, leading up to chapter 40, he's talking about the judgment of Israel primarily through Assyria, but then the northern kingdom of Israel. But then 40 and following, he kind of leaps forward to the judgment of Judah uh, through Babylon and then the ultimate restoration that will come through God's chosen servant. And so... Um, and so a feature of Isaiah that we talked and we talked about it recently as we're going through the book of Matthew is what they call these servant songs. Okay, these special sections that have a, a servant of God in view that fulfills God's purposes for Israel and we see here for the world. And in our text today, what we see initially here is this language of calling. All right, the first the first call that we have here in verse one there is he calls to the nations. God calls to the coastlands. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. God's talking to us. God has something to say to the world. Okay? And what is, what is he saying? There's, there's another calling. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he called me by name. And so, the Lord, and so God calls to the nations, and the things that he wants the nations to know is that God has called somebody, a particular individual. And so the calling of this individual in God's mind is apparently of, very, of, of great relevance for us to know this one whom God has called, this one whom God has chosen from the body of my mother. He named me by name. He called this chosen servant from before his birth. That means that this, this was a plan. This was a purpose of God. It was an accident. Jesus was born into the world through the Virgin Mary, not by accident, but part of the eternal plan of God. This language is the language of, of the calling of a prophet. In, in Jeremiah 1.5, Jeremiah, uh, God describes, God tells Jeremiah of his calling like this. He says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. 
And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So it was not, it was not an accident. It was planned by God. He was brought into this world to fulfill the age-long promises of God to bring the world back, to, to, to redeem the world from the curse of sin brought into the world by our forebears, by Adam and Eve. And so, and so it's, it's, it's the promise being fulfilled through Jesus Christ. And it says here there in verse 2, it says, He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. Well, that language is what? Again, it's, it's the language of a prophet, right? This servant that God had chosen before his womb, he, the, his weapon would be his mouth. He would speak the words of God. And with his, and with his words, with his words, he would, he would divide the world. He would judge the world. God executes, God executes his purposes and his judgment through the word of his servant. You remember in the book of John where Jesus is in yet another controversy? And, and he says, and he says, uh, he says I, on the last day, I will not condemn you. The words I have spoken will be your judge on the last day. So it's, 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 it's his words. His words is the short. He comes as a prophet of God to speak, and his speech executes the purposes and judgment of God in the world. And that's what Jesus, that's what Jesus came to do. And that's what he did. It says there, in the shadow of his hand he hid me. In, in his quiver he hid me away. Again, it, it's so subtle, but I think it's so profound. That, that it, it already implies that the work of this servant would be mysterious. It would be surprising. Okay? It, it, would, it would be shocking. And, and, so, and so, you know, pe- people didn't, they didn't see it coming. And, and, and that, that was part of the plan. That was, that was part of how it was supposed to be. And, and in verse 3 it says, You are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. And so, you know, and so... Some people would read that and say, well, he, well, see, he's talking about the nation of Israel. He's not talking about Jesus there. But it's, it's a little more complicated than that. Remember how in the earlier in the book of Matthew, as we we're going through the book of Matthew, we saw how Matthew tells Jesus' story in such a way to tell us that Jesus fulfills the nation of Israel? Remember how uh, uh, Jesus and due to the providential circumstances of his life, had to go down into Egypt and then come back up again? How, how at the beginning of his ministry, he, uh, he endured 40 days of trial by Satan in the wilderness, just as Israel was 40 years in the wilderness, and how one of the temptations of Satan was what? Was bread, which was the number one point of grumbling of Israel against God in the wilderness? And so over and over again, we see Jesus depicted as Israel. And then even here... In this same passage, if in verse 6, it says, um, it, is, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. And so he, he, he calls him Israel, but then he tells him that he's going to raise up Jacob and save the preserved of Israel. So obviously, even within Isaiah itself, he's talking about someone who both represents Israel, but is distinct from Israel. 
who represents Israel, but is a unique chosen servant who is going to redeem Israel, the chosen of Israel, from their sins. And so just as David as the king in in ancient times, okay, the king represented the, the whole nation. And so Jesus, as the the heir of David and the heir to David's throne, is the full representative of the nation of Israel. He is God's chosen servant. For what purpose? Verse 3, he says, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. There it is right there. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus, that's why, that's why, that's why everything exists. To bring glory to God. For God to receive what is due his name. And Jesus is the vehicle through which God will receive the glory that he is due. There are things about God that we could never know, that we could not possibly understand. Unless all redemptive history played out exactly as it has. Unless Jesus has has come exactly as he did to suffer for his name that God may be glorified. And so we see that Christ is God's chosen instrument. He is God's vehicle of both judgment and of redemption. And the, two, and, and the two in the Bible always go together. God judges his enemies, and then when God judges his enemies, his people are delivered. That's how it works. When God judges Satan, his people are delivered from Satan. When God judges sin on the cross, his people are delivered from their sin. Judgment and redemption always go together. And he does both through Jesus Christ. And so when Isaiah the prophet, when God speaks to Isaiah the prophet saying, Give ear, O coastlands, give ear, O nations, hear about this servant that I'm going to give the world. We better listen and listen up because God has a servant who's coming who's both going to judge and to save the world. But it's how we respond to him that will decide on which side of that we're on. And here we are, 2,000 years later, thousands of miles away in Eastman, Georgia, and those, those words have, are of ultimate consequence for all of us today in this room, that Jesus is Christ, God's chosen servant. So Christ is God's chosen instrument. Number two, Christ is God's suffering servant. Christ is God's suffering servant. In verse 4 there, it says, But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense is with God. And so, again, you know, this is, this is so interesting. It's so subtle. It's so mysterious. You, you read through the book of Isaiah, and you read this, and you kind of like, you know, what's happening? What's going on? We have this guy who's this chosen servant. He, he is Israel, but he redeems Israel. You know, his, he's going to, his, his, his mouth is like a sharp sword. His words are going to judge and redeem the world. And here we have this same servant, and what is he doing? He's lamenting. Look at that. I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Okay? He's lamenting. How is this person who is so significant in the eyes of God, who, is, who God knew him and chose him before the foundation of the world, how is this, how is this person who is so significant to God, how is, how is he lamenting? How, how could it be that he, it seems that his labor is in vain? And of course, it's 
It's, it's divine prophecy. It's telling us about Christ. It's telling us about the ministry of this servant, which are so mysterious. And that is that this servant, his ministry, uh, from, a, from a surely human perspective, from the outside looking in, you would look at it and you would think, man, what a waste. The disciples, again, on the road to Emmaus, they're just like, we were sure that he was the one, and now look, he's dead. Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And so, you know, I mean, if you think about Jesus' life from a strictly human perspective, it's lamentable. Okay? He only lived to be in his mid-30s. He only had three years of public ministry. I, I've been in public ministry longer than Jesus was. But that's because, that's because the impact of somebody's ministry, you know, we think in terms of human perspective, long, long time, long successful ministry. But the most successful ministry that ever happened came from a, a man who only lived to be in his mid-30s, who only ministered for three years. And he saved the world. And that's why he says there at the end of verse 4, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense is with God. That is the servant does what? He has faith. His ministry would be one that would tempt him to say, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing. But he has faith. My right is with the Lord. My recompense is with God. He knows, the servant knows, that it is the Lord that will determine the ultimate scope and impact of his ministry. God can do a lot with a little. And that's for us too. That's for us too. Some of us, you know, life, life is hard. It's not easy. And sometimes we think, well, what's the point? Or, you know, this is fruitless or this is vanity. But serving the Lord will always bear fruit. You might not get to see it, but it will. And we'll, we'll all see it one day. Well, it's impossible for us to judge the impact, the, the full impact of faithfulness. The, the, the fruit that our faithfulness to Christ will bear is... It is God that produces the fruit. And so it's, it's, it's totally in his hands. And so all we have to do is be faithful and he'll deal with the scope and the impact of our lives for him. His recompense and reward would be in God and not in the appearance of earthly success and acclaim. And that's what it means to be the servant of God. And that's what it was with the, the ministry of Christ. From all appearances, it was a wasted life. But even now, on this side of the cross, 2,000 years later, it's obvious to everybody, to anybody who knows anything about anything, that the most significant life ever lived was a man named Jesus of Nazareth. You don't even have to be a Christian to know that. That, that a life that changed the world more than any, that a single life changed, even from a sheer human perspective, no single life changed the world like the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Son of God. And, 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 and this was the calling on Jesus, one of apparent worthlessness, vanity, fruitlessness. The call to serve the Lord is a call to suffer. And I just think, I just think we, we need to get that in our heads. 
We need to teach it to our children. We need to remember it in our hearts. We need to remind ourselves of the 2,000 years of Christian suffering witness that goes before it. And I just, I just think we need to be ready. Because it's coming. Just saying. Whether, you know, would that, would that we would joyfully, freely embrace it for the sake of his name. Like a missionary does when he leaves house and home and everything to, to preach the gospel in hard places. But he, and, and so would that we would joyfully go and seek suffering for the name of Christ, if that's the call in our lives. But guess what? Even if you don't seek it, if you're faithful to Jesus, it's going to come find you. We need to reflect on the call to suffer through Christ. Death comes before resurrection. We need to reflect on the globe, our global mission as the church of God. We must come to grips with the call to suffer if we would have the full recompense and reward that we would have from the service of God. In, in Revelation, John saw this vision. And he says, I saw a great multitude that no one could number of every nation, tribe, and tongue. And they're singing praise to God. What was that? that wasn't, it wasn't a suggestion. It was a guarantee. That's going to happen. That's going to happen. It's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. Every nation... People from every nation, tribe, and tongue will sing praise to Jesus Christ. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The question is, so it's going to happen with or without us. The question is, are we going to dive in and be part of what God is doing in the world to see to it that every Nation, tribe, and tongue will give to Jesus what he has gl- due, glory and honor and praise. It will come, but it will come at a cost. It came at a cost for Jesus. Jesus paid the highest possible cost for God to receive the glory that he is due and for him to receive the glory. that he, and, and, and his reward was that he will receive the glory that he is due. And it comes at a cost. And so that's why we just, that's why it's just, I've just been thinking about it and we just need to wrestle with it. The cost of following Jesus, for some of our brothers and sisters, the cost is high, very high. Family, job, life. The cost for us might be, right now at least, an awkward conversation. It's not much of a cost. But if we're not willing to pay that, what makes us think we're going to pay something more? Isaiah saw a vision, and God said, Who will go? Whom shall we send? And Isaiah said, Here I am. Send me. But do you remember what happens after that? God says, okay, I'll send you. But guess what? They're not going to listen. 
We're not obligated to make people listen. But we are obligated to preach the message. And through our sufferings, others will find life. And through the forsaking, as God raises up and calls out missionaries to go across the street and across the world, and I pray that he would. Through the forsaking of family for foreign lands, they will bring others into the one eternal family of God, snatching people from the fires of hell. And I don't know a single, I have no doubt in my mind that there is not a single missionary uh, or every mission, I just can't imagine there being a missionary who has not thought what the servant of the Lord says here. I spent my, I spent my, my labor in vain. I spent my strength for nothing. But deep down we know that our right and our recompense is with God. So the call to follow Christ is the call to suffer. So we see Christ, God's chosen instrument, Christ, God's suffering servant. And finally, Christ, God's light for the nations. In verse 6 there, it says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One. To one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise. Princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful. The Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. I think this is one of the most glorious passages in Scripture. It's divine, interpersonal dialogue. It's God the Father talking to God the Son, Jesus Christ. The servant says, I've labored in vain, but my reward is with God. And so then how does God respond? He says, yes, and here will be your reward and your recompense from me. It's too small a thing that you should save one people. So I'm going to use you to save the whole world. Christ is too great to receive glory from just one nation. So God's going to make sure that he receives glory from all nations. The servant will glorify God, and God is going to honor the servant. God has chosen that his servant would not just be the light of Israel, but the light of the world. And I just think, I just think we just... We can't miss that. We just have to remember the glory of God's grace. God doesn't owe us anything. He didn't owe us salvation. But he came and he pursued us through Jesus Christ. And what's interesting here is that this passage is quoted in Acts chapter 13. It says there, um, when Paul and Barnabas are on their missionary journey, it says that they spoke out boldly, saying, after they're, after they're rejected in a synagogue, which often happened, they said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, that is, to the Jews, right? That was even Jesus' principle, right? 
Israel had the promises. Israel had the, the blessings, okay? And so in God's providence, in God's wisdom, they would be the first to receive the gospel. Christ came to do his ministry among the, the Jews, and largely the Jews rejected him, and his salvation extended to the whole world. And even in the early church, Paul and Barnabas, and Paul being even the, the explicit missionary to the Gentiles, wherever he went, he always went and proclaimed the gospel first to the Jews, that they would have the first opportunity to receive their own Messiah. But it says here, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. But since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, that's what happens when somebody rejects Jesus. They're counting themselves unworthy of eternal life. It says, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And get this. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word, the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. You see that? They proclaimed to the Jews, the Jews counted themselves unworthy of eternal life, and they went to the Gentiles, and when they, they told it to the Gentiles, the Gentiles glorified God. Because Jesus Christ will receive what he is due. And notice here, and this stood out to me as I was thinking about this, in, verse, in, in, in the, the passage we just read, verse 47. It says, For so the Lord commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. They're quoting this passage that we're talking about this morning. But it says there, for so, Paul and Barnabas say, for so the Lord has commanded us. Now think about that for a second. There's no command in this passage in Isaiah. But Paul and Barnabas read it. Read the fact that Jesus is given by God as a light for the Gentiles. They read the brute, that brute fact as a command. Because, why? Because that fact carries with it a moral imperative. Because God has made Christ a light for the nations, therefore we who believe in Christ have the moral obligation to make sure that that light goes to every place God desires it to go. So the brute fact that Jesus Christ is a light for the nations carries with it a moral imperative that we as followers of Christ take that light to all the nations. You see, Paul and Barnabas, they didn't have a choice. The scripture said Jesus would be a light for the nation. So guess what? That means I have to take it there. To shine the light of Jesus Christ to the world. And the Jews rejected it. But when they proclaimed it to the Gentiles, they believed. They embraced it. And that's what happens. And even in the text there at the end, it says, As many as was appointed to eternal life believed. That goes back to what we talked about uh, not too long ago. But we, we deliver the message, and God's going to save who's God's going to save. So guess what? The pressure's off. The pressure's off. You don't have to worry about it. You deliver the message. You let God do the saving. 
And he will, and he does. And that's why it says there in verse 7 here, and this is just profound. It says, it says, the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, his Holy One, to one deeply despised and abhorred by the nation. Again, the Jews, rede- again, this was written like 700 years before Jesus came. The prophecy, what, remember Jesus, again, he told the disciples on Emmaus, did you, you, know, did you not understand that, G- that the Messiah must be rejected and killed? Well, there it is right there. The nation would abhor him and despise him. But it says, but it says, kings shall arise. Princes shall prostrate themselves. I just want you to think about this. This is amazing. We don't, we don't have, you know, this, this honor is kind of lost on our culture. But, you know, but there was a day, especially in ancient, in ancient culture like this, when a man of a certain stature walked into the room, other men stood up and stepped out the way. There will be a day when Jesus enters into the room and any man who has a, 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 a modicum of sense, he's going to stand up. In honor, in reverence, the kings of the earth. And it says princes will do what? They shall prostrate themselves. The young, man, the, the, the young men who, who aren't even worthy to stand in his presence, they're just going to fall on their faces before Jesus Christ. He was abhorred by the nation, but he won't. That, that's not always going to be the case. Because the Lord, the faithful one, the holy one of Israel has chosen you. That's what's going to happen to the one who said, I've labored in vain. He will find himself the object of the worship of kings. You see, part of the Christian life and the Christian battle right in every age and right now is we have to maintain perspective. We have to maintain perspective. If all you do is watch the news, then guess what? You're going to be shaped by the world's values. Because they're the ones who make the news. If you read the Bible, you're going to be shaped by God's values. Because he's the one who wrote the Bible. And let me tell you something. Everything that people think are so important right now. And I'm not saying things aren't important. Some things are important. But I'm just saying, some things are much more important than others. And when Jesus comes back, all the political scandals and stuff, everyone who just spent all their time wholly engaged in all that, not thinking about eternal things, they're going to realize, I wasted my time. But at that point, it'll be too late. This is Christ. He is the king. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. It is his kingdom which comes like a rock and, and strikes every other nation and turns it into dust and grows into a mountain that fills the whole world. Kings and monarchs and czars and dictators and princes and prime ministers and presidents will bow the knee to King Jesus. It is too small a thing for him to be the savior of the Jews, so he's become the savior of the world. And because that is true, a command is laid upon us to take the light across the street 
and across the world. And so as I close this morning, let's remember Christ this Christmas. He came for us, and not just for us, but for the whole world. And so remember this Christmas as we're giving gifts to each other, as a wonderful thing that that is. Ask yourself, what can I give Jesus this Christmas? What part of me have maybe I've been holding back that I'm going to just lay out for him? And finally this morning, I just want to say, maybe there's someone in here, someone listening this morning that doesn't know Jesus Christ. I just want to say to you, Jesus is the king. Jesus is Lord Jesus is great. Jesus is glorious. Jesus is merciful to forgive all sin, past, present, and future, for those who call on him by faith. And the time of mercy is now. He has extended it for so long. The time of mercy is now. Repent and believe in Jesus. Bow the knee to him willingly, joyfully now as your kind and merciful and gracious king. And he will own you as his when he comes. But if you stiffen the knee, you see, when the king walks into the room, knees should start to bend. But if you try to stiffen your knee against bowing, the Bible says every knee will bow. If you try to stiffen your knee against King Jesus, guess what? When he returns, that knee will break and you will bow. But it'll be too late. But King Jesus offers full, unfettered access to his kingdom through repentance and faith, if you will believe. We're going to take a break, as I mentioned, from the book of Matthew this morning. And talk about how Jesus is the light for the nations. The light for the nations. But before we do, let's pray together. Father, what a privilege to be here with these brothers and sisters in the Lord. And we look up to you this morning, Lord Jesus, to worship you. We ask for grace, Lord. Um, you wrote the, through your Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago, you wrote to us saying um, that the night is far gone, the day is at hand. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord, redeem the time that you have given us, that we would fulfill the callings that you've placed upon our lives, that we would do our part, Lord, to participate in the worldwide work that you are doing to bring in your people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, so that Jesus Christ will receive the glory that he is due. Help us to get a greater vision of who you are this morning, King Jesus. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah chapter 49. And... uh, we're going to be talking about Jesus and uh, this, uh, this Old Testament prophecy concerning him this morning. And we know one of the great characteristics of Jesus' ministry that really carries throughout the entire Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's the call on the believers of Jesus Christ after Jesus. And that is that obedience to God for the glory of his name virtually always entails suffering. 
It's true of Jesus, and it is true of those who go out in Jesus' name for the sake of his name. Um, Jesus said one time that no one who leaves lands or houses or families or brothers or sisters or mothers for the sake of my name and for the gospel who will not receive in this time houses and lands and brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and in the age to come eternal life. And so there is a... To follow Christ in obedience for the sake of his name, there are things that must be given up. But no matter how much we give up for Christ, he always gives us way more in return. John Piper put it this way. He said, the Calvary road with Jesus is not a joyless road. It is a painful one, but it is a profoundly happy one. When we choose the fleeting pleasures of comfort and security over the sacrifices and sufferings of missions and evangelism and ministry and love, we choose against joy. We reject the spring whose waters never fail. The happiest people in the world are those who experience the mystery of Christ in them, the hope of glory satisfying their deep longings and freeing them to extend the afflictions of Christ through their own sufferings to the world. That's the blessing of everyone who denies themselves for the sake of Christ. I'm going to see how Jesus did this for the glory of God from our text this morning in Isaiah chapter 49 Verses 1 through 7. And so if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. We're going to read from Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 through 7. This is the prophet Isaiah writing some 700 years before the birth of Christ. He says, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. He's talking to us. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. The Word of God. You may be seated. So I want to see three things concerning Christ this morning from this passage. Number one, I want to see Christ, God's chosen instrument. Christ, God's chosen instrument. Number two, Christ, God's suffering servant. Christ, God's suffering servant. Number three, Christ, God's light for the nations. 
Christ, God's light for the nations. But first we want to see Christ, God's chosen servant. God's chosen servant. I want to reflect this morning on how Christ came to save the whole world. We, t- we take that for granted. But if you've ever read through the Bible carefully, you've probably noticed how basically how the entire Old Testament really just focuses on one nation. One people group, the Jews, the nation of Israel. Now, God makes all kinds of amazing promises to this people. But, if you know, if the, if the Old Testament was all that we had and you were reading it, you, you would be left wondering, well, that's great for the Jews. But what about everybody else? And this fact confounded a lot of Jews. And that was, probably, that was the point of greatest controversy in the ministry of Jesus. Again, we take it for granted. But that was the great point of controversy. How is it that Gentiles, non-Jewish, pagan people, how is it that they too can enter among, into the congregation of God's chosen people and receive the promises of God? As someone once wisely said, the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. That is, it, it was there. It was, it was there all along, but it was mysterious, and it was hidden. And this is true in, one of the, in the passage that we're looking at today. And so it's something, it was a mystery that Paul called it, that had to be unveiled. And so again, we, we take it for granted, but it was, not, it was not at all clear how we could be saved. Have you ever thought about that? Remember when Peter went to Cornelius's house and he shared and he wasn't even supposed to do that according to jewish law right and he shared the gospel with them and the holy spirit fell upon cornelius and he was the first gentile to be saved and 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 paul and uh, peter goes back to jerusalem to tell them what happened and the other christian jews are kind of arguing with him about it and 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 almost not exactly but almost reluctantly they say well I guess, the, I guess the Holy Spirit has come to Gentiles too. <laughs> Surprise. Guess so. All I can say is thank God that we can be saved. And Jesus had to explain that. He had to describe that. The road to Emmaus. These disciples were walking and they were disillusioned. They couldn't figure out how Jesus had died. And this stranger walks up beside them on the road to Emmaus. And they, and they said, he asked them what's going on. And, and they're like, you know, are you the only person, you know, have you had your ears shut? Do you not know what's happened in Jerusalem? And he's like, tell me about it. And this and, this and so Jesus came and he died. And, and, they did, and we thought he was the one to save Israel. And, and he just says, why are you, you know? Why are you so slow to understand, to get what's happening? But that's what happened. And in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is probably one, is, is, is one of the most quoted uh, Old Testament books in the New Testament, and for good reason. And Isaiah is basically broken up into two sections, uh, one, chapters 1 through 40 and then 40 and following. And uh, leading up to chapter 40, he's talking about the judgment of Israel primarily through Assyria, but then the northern kingdom of Israel. But then 40 and following, he kind of leaps forward to the judgment of Judah uh, through Babylon and then the ultimate restoration that will come through God's chosen servant. And so um, 
And so a feature of Isaiah that we talked and we talked about it recently as we're going through the book of Matthew is what they call these servant songs. Okay, these special sections that have a, a servant of God in view that fulfills God's purposes for Israel and we see here for the world. And in our text today, what we see initially here is this language of calling. All right, the first the first call that we have here in verse one there is he calls to the nations. God calls to the coastlands. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. God's talking to us. God has something to say to the world. Okay? And what is, what is he saying? There's, there's another calling. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he called me by name. And so, the Lord, and so God calls to the nations, and the things that he wants the nations to know is that God has called somebody, a particular individual. And so the calling of this individual in God's mind is apparently of, very, of, of great relevance for us to know this one whom God has called, this one whom God has chosen from the body of my mother. He named me by name. He called this chosen servant from before his birth. That means that this, this was a plan. This was a purpose of God. It was an accident. Jesus was born into the world through the Virgin Mary, not by accident, but part of the eternal plan of God. This language is the language of, of the calling of a prophet. In, in Jeremiah 1.5, Jeremiah, uh, God describes, God tells Jeremiah of his calling like this. He says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So it was, not, it was not an accident. It was planned by God. He was brought into this world to fulfill the age-long promises of God to bring the world back, to, to, to redeem the world from the curse of sin brought into the world by our forebears, by Adam and Eve. And so, and so it's, it's, it's the promise being fulfilled through Jesus Christ. And it says here there in verse 2, it says, He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. Well, that language is what? Again, it's, it's the language of a prophet. right? This servant that God had chosen before his womb, he, the, his weapon would be his mouth. He would speak the words of God. And with his, and with his words... With his words, he would, he would divide the world. He would judge the world. God executes, God executes his purposes and his judgment through the word of his servant. You remember in the book of John where Jesus is in yet another controversy? And, and he says, and he says, uh, he says I, on the last day, I will not condemn you. The words I have spoken will be your judge on the last day. So it's, it's, it's his words. His words is the sure. He comes as a prophet of God to speak, and his speech executes the purposes and judgment of God in the world. And that's what Jesus, that's what Jesus came to do. And that's what he did. It says there, in the shadow of his hand he hid me. In, in his quiver he hid me away. Again, it, it's so subtle, but I think it's so profound. That, that it, it already implies that the work of this servant would be mysterious. 
It would be surprising. Okay? It, it, would, it would be shocking. And, and so, and so but, you know, pe- people didn't, they didn't see it coming. And, and, and that, that was part of the plan. That was, that was part of how it was supposed to be. And, and in verse 3 it says, You are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. And so, you know, and so some people would read that and say, well, he, well, see, he's talking about the nation of Israel. He's not talking about Jesus there. But it's, it's a little more complicated than that. Remember how in the earlier in the book of Matthew, as we're going through the book of Matthew, we saw how Matthew tells Jesus' story in such a way to tell us that Jesus fulfills the nation of Israel. Remember how uh, uh, Jesus... and due to the providential circumstances of his life, had to go down into Egypt and then come back up again? How, how at the beginning of his ministry, he, uh, he endured 40 days of trial by Satan in the wilderness, just as Israel was 40 years in the wilderness, and how one of the temptations of Satan was what? Was bread, which was the number one point of grumbling of Israel against God in the wilderness? And so over and over again, we see Jesus depicted as Israel. And then even here... In this same passage, if in verse 6, it says, um, it, is, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. And so he, he, he calls him Israel, but then he tells him that he's going to raise up Jacob and save the preserved of Israel. So obviously, even within Isaiah itself, he's talking about someone who both represents Israel, but is distinct from Israel who represents Israel, but is a unique chosen servant who is going to redeem Israel, the chosen of Israel, from their sins. And so just as David as the king in in ancient times, okay, the king represented the the whole nation. And so Jesus, as the, the heir of David and the heir to David's throne, is the full representative of the nation of Israel. He is God's chosen servant. For what purpose? Verse 3, he says, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. There it is, right there. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus, that's why, that's why, that's why everything exists. To bring glory to God. For God to receive what is due his name. And Jesus is the vehicle through which God will receive the glory that he is due. There are things about God that we could never know, that we could not possibly understand, unless all redemptive history played out exactly as it, as it has, unless Jesus has, has come exactly as he did to suffer for his name, that God may be glorified. And so we see that Christ is God's chosen instrument. He is God's vehicle of both judgment and of redemption. And the, two, and, and the two in the Bible always go together. God judges his enemies, and then when God judges his enemies, his people are delivered. That's how it works. When God judges Satan, his people are delivered from Satan. When God judges sin on the cross, his people are delivered from their sin. Judgment and redemption always go together. And he does both through Jesus Christ. And so when Isaiah the prophet when God speaks to Isaiah the prophet saying, Give ear, O coastlands, give ear, O nations, hear about this servant that I'm going to give the world. We better listen and listen up because God has a servant who's coming who's both going to judge and to save the world. 
But it's how we respond to him that will decide on which side of that we're on. And here we are 2,000 years later, thousands of miles away in Eastman, Georgia. And those, those words have, are of ultimate consequence for all of us today in this room. That Jesus is Christ, God's chosen servant. So Christ is God's chosen instrument. Number two, Christ is God's suffering servant. Christ is God's suffering servant. In verse 4 there, it says, But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense is with God. And so, again, you know, this is, this is so interesting. It's so subtle. It's so mysterious. You, you read through the book of Isaiah, and you read this, and you kind of like, you know, what's happening? What's going on? We have this guy who's this chosen servant. He, he is Israel, but he redeems Israel. You know, his, he's going to, his, his, his mouth is like a sharp sword. His words are going to judge and redeem the world. And here we have this same servant, and what is he doing? He's lamenting. Look at that. I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Okay? He's lamenting. How is this person who is so significant in the eyes of God, who, is, who God knew him and chose him before the foundation of the world, how is this, how is this person who is so significant to God, how is, how is he lamenting? How, how could it be that he, it seems that his labor is in vain? And of course, it's, it's, it's divine prophecy. It's telling us about Christ. It's telling us about the ministry of this servant, which are so mysterious. And that is that this servant, his ministry, uh, from, a, from a surely human perspective, from the outside looking in, you would look at it and you would think, man, what a waste. The disciples, again, on the road to Emmaus, they're just like, we were sure that he was the one, and now look, he's dead. Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And so, you know, I mean, if you think about Jesus' life from a strictly human perspective, it's lamentable. Okay? He only lived to be in his mid-30s. He only had three years of public ministry. I, I've been in public ministry longer than Jesus was. But that's because, that's because of the impact of somebody's ministry. You know, we think in terms of human perspective, long, long time, long successful ministry. But the most successful ministry that ever happened came from a, a man who only lived to be in his mid-30s, who only ministered for three years. And he saved the world. And that's why he says there at the end of verse 4, Yet surely my right is with the Lord. And my recompense is with God. That is the servant does what? He has faith. His ministry would be one that would tempt him to say, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing. But he has faith. My right is with the Lord. My recompense is with God. He knows, the servant knows, that it is the Lord that will determine the ultimate scope and impact of his ministry. God can do a lot with a little. And that's for us too. That's for us too. Some of us, you know, life, life is hard. It's not easy. 
And sometimes we think, well, what's the point? Or, you know, this is fruitless or this is vanity. But serving the Lord will always bear fruit. You might not get to see it, but it will. And we'll we'll all see it one day. It's impossible for us to judge the impact, the the full impact of faithfulness. The, the, The fruit that our faithfulness to Christ will bear is... It is God that produces the fruit. And so it's, t- it's, it's totally in His hands. And so all we have to do is be faithful and He'll deal with the scope and the impact of our lives for Him. His recompense and reward would be in God and not in the appearance of earthly success and acclaim. And that's what it means to be the servant of God. And that's what it was with the, the ministry of Christ. From all appearances, it was a wasted life. But even now, on this side of the cross, 2,000 years later, it's obvious to everybody, to anybody who knows anything about anything, that the most significant life ever lived was a man named Jesus of Nazareth. You don't even have to be a Christian to know that. That, that a life that changed the world more than any, that a single life changed, even from a sheer human perspective, no single life changed the world like the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Son of God. And, 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 and this was the calling on Jesus, one of apparent worthlessness, vanity, fruitlessness. The call to serve the Lord is a call to suffer. And I just think, I just think we, we need to get that in our heads. We need to teach it to our children. We need to remember it in our hearts. We need to remind ourselves of the 2,000 years of Christian suffering witness that goes before it. And I I just think we need to be ready. Because it's coming. Just saying. Whether, you know, would that, would that we would joyfully, freely embrace it for the sake of his name. Like a missionary does when he leaves house and home and everything to, to preach the gospel in hard places. But he, and, and so would that we would joyfully go and seek suffering for the name of Christ, if that's the call in our lives. But guess what? Even if you don't seek it, if you're faithful to Jesus, it's going to come find you. We need to reflect on the call to suffer through Christ. Death comes before resurrection. We need to reflect on the globe, our global mission as the church of God. We must come to grips with the call to suffer if we would have the full recompense and reward that we would have from the service of God. In, in Revelation, John saw this vision. And he says, I saw a great multitude that no one could number. Of every nation, tribe, and tongue. And they're singing praise to God. What was that? That wasn't, it wasn't a suggestion. It was a guarantee. That's going to happen. That's going to happen. It's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. Every nation... People from every nation, tribe, and tongue will sing praise to Jesus Christ. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
The question is, so it's going to happen with or without us. The question is, are we going to dive in and be part of what God is doing in the world to see to it that every nation, tribe, and tongue will give to Jesus what he has due, glory and honor and praise. It will come, but it will come at a cost. It came at a cost for Jesus. Jesus paid the highest possible cost for God to receive the glory that he is due and for him to receive the glory. that he, and, and, and his reward was that he will receive the glory that he is due. And it comes at a cost. And so that's why we just, that's why it's just, I've just been thinking about it and we just need to wrestle with it. The cost of following Jesus, for some of our brothers and sisters, the cost is high, very high. Family, job, life. The cost for us might be, right now at least, an awkward conversation. It's not much of a cost. But if we're not willing to pay that, what makes us think we're going to pay something more? Isaiah saw a vision. And God said, who will go? Whom shall we send? And Isaiah said, here I am. Send me. Do you remember what happens after that? God says, okay, I'll send you. But guess what? They're not going to listen. We're not obligated to make people listen, but we are obligated to preach the message. And through our sufferings, others will find life. And through the forsaking, as God raises up and calls out missionaries to go across the street and across the world, and I pray that he would. Through the forsaking of family for foreign lands, they will bring others into the one eternal family of God, snatching people from the fires of hell. And I don't know a single, I have no doubt in my mind that there is not a single missionary or every mission. I just can't imagine there being a missionary who has not thought what the servant of the Lord says here. I spent my, I spent my, my labor in vain. <laughs> I spent my strength for nothing. But deep down we know that our right and our recompense is with God. So the call to follow Christ is the call to suffer. So we see Christ God's chosen instrument. Christ God's suffering servant. And finally Christ God's light for the nations. In verse 6 there it says, It is too light a thing. That you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations. That my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One. To one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise. Princes, and they shall prostrate themselves Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. 
I think this is one of the most glorious passages in Scripture. It's divine, interpersonal dialogue. It's God the Father talking to God the Son, Jesus Christ. The servant says, I've labored in vain, but my reward is with God. And so then how does God respond? He says, yes, and here will be your reward and your recompense from me. It's too small a thing that you should save one people. So I'm going to use you to save the whole world. Christ is too great to receive glory from just one nation. So God's going to make sure that he receives glory from all nations. The servant will glorify God and God is going to honor the servant. God has chosen that his servant would not just be the light of Israel, but the light of the world. And I just think, I just think we just, we can't miss that. We just have to remember the glory of God's grace. God doesn't owe us anything. He didn't owe us salvation. But he came and he pursued us through Jesus Christ. And what's interesting here is that this passage is quoted in Acts chapter 13. It says there, um, when Paul and Barnabas are on their missionary journey, it says that they spoke out boldly, saying, after after they're rejected in a synagogue, which often happens, they said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, that is to the Jews, right? That was even Jesus' principle, right? Israel had the promises. Israel had the, the blessings, okay? And so in God's providence and God's wisdom, they would be the first to receive the gospel. Christ came to do his ministry among the, the Jews, and largely the Jews rejected him, and his salvation extended to the whole world. And even in the early church, Paul and Barnabas, and Paul being even the, the explicit missionary to the Gentiles, wherever he went, he always went and proclaimed the gospel first to the Jews. That they would have the first opportunity to receive their own Messiah. But it says here, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. But since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, that's what happens when somebody rejects Jesus. They're counting themselves unworthy of eternal life. Says, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And get this for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word. The word of the Lord. And as many as as were appointed to eternal life. Believed. You see that? They proclaimed to the Jews. The Jews counted themselves unworthy of eternal life. And they went to the Gentiles. And when they, they told it to the Gentiles. The Gentiles glorified God. Because Jesus Christ will receive what he is due. And notice here, and this stood out to me as I was thinking about this, in, verse, in, in, in the, the passage we just read, verse 47. It says, For so the Lord commanded us, saying, I have made you a light 
for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. They're quoting this passage that we're talking about this morning. But it says there, for so, they, Paul and Barnabas say, for so the Lord has commanded us. Now think about that for a second. There's no command in this passage in Isaiah. But Paul and Barnabas read it. Read the fact that Jesus is given by God as a light for the Gentiles. They read the brute, that brute fact as a command. Because, why? Because that fact carries with it a moral imperative. Because God has made Christ a light for the nations, therefore we who believe in Christ have the moral obligation to make sure that that light goes to every place God desires it to go. So the brute fact that Jesus Christ is the light for the nations carries with it a moral imperative that we as followers of Christ take that light to all the nations. You see, Paul and Barnabas, they didn't have a choice. The scripture said Jesus would be a light for the nation, so guess what? That means I have to take it there. To shine the light of Jesus Christ to the world. And the Jews rejected it, but when they proclaimed it to the Gentiles, they believed. They embraced it. And that's what happens. And even in the text there at the end, it says, as many as was appointed to eternal life believed. That goes back to what we talked about uh, not too long ago. But we, we deliver the message, and God's going to save who's God's going to save. So guess what? The pressure's off. The pressure's off. You don't have to worry about it. You deliver the message. You let God do the saving. And he will, and he does. And that's why it says there in verse 7 here, and this is just profound. It says, it says, the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, his Holy One, to one deeply despised and abhorred by the nation. Again, the Jews, rede- again, this was written like 700 years before Jesus came. The prophecy, what, remember Jesus, again, he told the disciples on Emmaus, did you, you, know, did you not understand that, G- that the Messiah must be rejected and killed? Well, there it is right there. The nation would abhor him and despise him. But it says, but it says, Kings shall arise. Princes shall prostrate themselves. I just want you to think about this. This is amazing. We don't, we don't have, you know, this, this honor is kind of lost on our culture. But, you know, but there was a day, especially in ancient, in ancient culture like this, when a man of a certain stature walked into the room, other men stood up and stepped out the way. There will be a day when Jesus enters into the room and any man who has a a modicum of sense, he's going to stand up in honor. It's the kings of the earth. And it says princes will do what? They shall prostrate themselves. The young young men who who aren't even worthy to stand in his presence, they're just going to fall on their faces before Jesus Christ. He was abhorred by the nation, but he won't. That, that's not always going to be the case. Because the Lord, the faithful one, the holy one of Israel has chosen you. That's what's going to happen to the one who said, I've labored in vain. He will find himself the object of the worship of kings.
You see, part of the Christian life and the Christian battle right in every age and right now is we have to maintain perspective. We have to maintain perspective. If all you do is watch the news, then guess what? You're going to be shaped by the world's values. Because they're the ones who make the news. If you read the Bible, you're going to be shaped by God's values. Because he's the one who wrote the Bible. And let me tell you something. Everything that people think are so important right now. And I'm not saying things aren't important. Some things are important. But I'm just saying. Some things are much more important than others. And when Jesus comes back. All the political scandals and stuff. Everyone who just spent all their time wholly engaged in all that, not thinking about eternal things, they're going to realize, I wasted my time. But at that point, it'll be too late. This is Christ. He is the king. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. It is his kingdom which comes like a rock and and strikes every other nation and turns it into dust and grows into a mountain that fills the whole world. Kings and monarchs and czars and dictators and princes and prime ministers and presidents will bow the knee to King Jesus. It is too small a thing for him to be the savior of the Jews so he's become the savior of the world. And because that is true, A command is laid upon us to take the light across the street and across the world. And so as I close this morning, let's remember Christ this Christmas. He came for us, and not just for us, but for the whole world. And so remember this Christmas as we're giving gifts to each other as a wonderful thing that that is. Ask yourself, what can I give Jesus this Christmas? What part of me have maybe I've been holding back that I'm going to just lay out for him? And finally this morning, I just want to say, maybe there's someone in here, someone listening this morning that doesn't know Jesus Christ. I just want to say to you, Jesus is the king. Jesus is Lord Jesus is great. Jesus is glorious. Jesus is merciful to forgive all sin, past, present, and future, for those who call on him by faith. And the time of mercy is now. He has extended it for so long. The time of mercy is now. Repent and believe in Jesus. Bow the knee to him willingly, joyfully now as your kind and merciful and gracious king. And he will own you as his when he comes. But if you stiffen the knee, you see, when the king walks into the room, knees should start to bend. But if you try to stiffen your knee against bowing, the Bible says every knee will bow. If you try to stiffen your knee against King Jesus, guess what? When he returns, that knee will break and you will bow. But it'll be too late. But King Jesus offers full, unfettered access to his kingdom through repentance and faith, if you will believe.